Hello, and welcome to Lightbulb Talks. My name is Brady Dale. I'm the host of this gathering tonight. We're going to talk to Brayton Williams of Boost VC. Uh, Boost is a venture capital company that goes all the way back to 2012. Um, it's been uh, in a variety of spaces. You know, their vision is making science fiction a reality. And um, Brayton is one of the first investors that I talked to when I started covering crypto you know, all the time and uh, have stayed in touch with him over the years. And when I started doing this, I thought he'd be one of the good early investors um, for me to talk to. I don't mean he's an early investor, though he is an early investor. I just mean he's one of the first investors I've talked to in the show. Not quite the first, but one of the first. So um, anyway, they've invested in a lot of interesting things in crypto and out, and we won't limit ourselves to crypto. Uh, no need. Uh, but I w- will bring him on shortly and uh, and talk about sort of what he's excited about now, what he has been excited about in the past, you know, where he sees the future going uh, and all that. Um, just to re- as a reminder to... Um, to anyone who's listening, you know, we are recording this. And so uh, the conversation that comes up later when folks join us, uh, that'll all be recorded too. And it goes up on the SpaceCast podcasts. Um, this is one of several shows that goes up on there, things that are taped off of Twitter spaces and Clubhouse, mostly technology-based conversations for now. So, uh, you know, definitely check it out. There's a lot of other good stuff on there as well. Um, so let me bring Brayton onto the stage now. Am I on? There you are. How's it going, man? Nailed it. Uh, I am doing well. How are you doing? Good. So, listen, there's a, a bunch of uh, cool things for for us to talk about. But, but the first thing I just want to start off with, uh, I was just going back over you guys' website tonight before this. And uh, and there's a. I know, you know, science fiction is, is you guys' jam. Uh, did you guys really invest in that, um, like, the Jetpack Iron Man company? I, I watched that video like 20 times when it came out. You guys, I mean, it makes sense that you guys would be in there, but but you're a part of that. Uh, yeah, and I saw Adam join and leave, but uh, one of the original theses of Boost was uh, invest in anything that gets us closer to an Iron Man suit. Okay, uh, wow. Adam, okay. Adam, Adam uh, Draper, my co-founder, uh, huge comic book nerd, loves Iron Man, and so we don't only have one jetpack investment; we have two jetpack investments. Nice. So that's kind of uh, I think we're cornering the market. Did you invest in that hydro jetpack? Do you know what I'm talking about? No. We have uh, Gravity um, and then Jetpack Aviation are okay. the two we uh, invested in. I, I, I'm some, something of a connoisseur of people flying for real videos. And there's this uh, – do you know what I'm talking about with the hydro jetpack? Uh, I don't think so. Oh, it's really cool. It's um, it's a limited application product, but it, it is real. Um it's a jetpack, but it shoots water, and there's this giant hose that sticks out of it. So you you have to oh, be yeah, yeah yeah yeah. So you have to be around water to use it, because um, it needs to be able to touch water to pull water up, you know. Um, but it's still you can like go in the water and stuff. The other thing I really like is um, I'm sure you guys have seen this, but the, the hoverboard company, the you know the one that's kind of like the Green Goblin sort of equivalent. Yeah, I mean, how cool is it that we have multiple ways to fly these days? Yeah, the limitation like, must be that none of them can go very far, right? It's the energy's the problem, right? I, I, Am I, am I yeah, guessing? you know, you you can go into the jetpack problems, but the uh, two of the main ones are they're super loud, and the other one is like the fuel isn't super efficient, so yeah. you do have limited time. Yeah, yeah. Well, that that is that is cool. That is definitely uh, that is definitely very science fiction. So congratulations for being a part of that. I remember when I feel like one of the videos of that one is that jetpack aviation that is the one that sort of has the things in the hands. 
Uh, gravity. Gravity. Okay. When that gravity video was kind of going around Twitter, I watched it like 20 times. I sent it to a bunch of people. Um, so, you know, definitely, definitely very impressive stuff. Um, cool. So, well, I guess that's a good, uh, you know, one of the things I wanted to ask you about was sort of return us to you guys, to you and Adam Draper, um, you know, co-founded Boost together. And you have, you've always, as I understand it, had this, this thesis always. of, of, um, of, uh, investing for the science fiction future, you know, how did you settle on that? Like what, you know, where did that come from? And, uh, maybe take us back to those, those days. Yeah. So, uh, Adam and I started Boost VC in 2012. Um, we actually started as kind of a generalist accelerator. So today we say we're the accelerator for sci-fi. Uh, back then we were a generalist accelerator and, uh, you know, we were trying to figure out how to differentiate. Why would someone choose us over someone else? And, uh, kind of 2012, 2013, we started saying, like seeing a bunch of very talented people in Bitcoin and it was just called Bitcoin back then. Like Mm -hmm. it wasn't crypto. It wasn't, there wasn't much to it. Uh, there was kind of Coinbase, which Adam, uh, was fortunate enough and boost to invest in. Um, and then we were like, okay, there's really smart people in this space. Let's just start backing crypto or Bitcoin founders back then, uh, because they seem super talented and there's no one else funding them. Let's just do that and try to get as many Bitcoin companies as we can. So that's how we kind of started. And what we what happened was when we went full in on Bitcoin, um, we became kind of known for we became known for it. It was like, OK, wow, these people are kind of uh, taking this first step. So founders joined us because they were like, oh, you know, we're not crazy. Someone else is interested. Corporates started to come to us because they're like, you know, banks were like, oh, there might be something here. Other VCs were trying to learn from it. So what we learned was like, these very early stage tech communities really had no one helping foster the ecosystem. So we wanted to play that role. So what we started doing was kind of verticalizing. Um, so the second vertical we chose was virtual reality, kind of had a lot of similarities. Uh, and then now we kind of just go after early, early tech. You know, some people call it deep tech, frontier. Um, we like sci-fi, we think. Uh, and, and we actually talked to a lot of deep tech founders and VCs, and they all like the word deep tech. And we actually strongly like the word sci-fi because we think, you know, science fiction is so important and narratives are so important. And you see this within crypto, how important narratives are. Um, and, and just how much, like if you look at Elon's, uh, launches or today, Bezos, right. Mm -hmm. Going to space, like it's inspiring the next generation. Um, 2020 was like a, obviously had its crazy, terrible moments, but it was a crazy good year for sci-fi with the amount of launches that SpaceX did, you know, vaccine in record time, uh, GPT-3, OpenAI, you know, launched a pretty damn good AI. So uh, things are looking pretty bright. We're excited. So, yeah, that's, that's uh, how we got to sci-fi. But I still spend most of my time in crypto. Um, Probably at least 50 percent. And yeah, I'm sure we'll cover a lot of that. I was on the sci-fi thing. I mean, I, I, I do. I guess I understand why folks might kind of resist it. But I also just think if you're old enough and kind of thought in that way, which I think a lot of people really don't. So that's fine. But, um, you know, it's hard not to having lived in like the last few decades um, to not really feel like this, that science fiction theme is really strong. I mean, I was just randomly thinking last night about a, a roommate I had in college who I, I wasn't that crazy about. We, we didn't get along great. But one of the things I, I just crossed my mind about him is one of his 
characteristics was he he came to college i'm old enough that this makes sense he came to college with a bunch of like vhs vhs tapes of like weird movies he's a real collector of like strange video and i hadn't thought about that fast of him for a long time but i was just like i don't know you know where he's at now but if any kid like him must just think that youtube is the like most fun thing ever now because he had to like hunt all this stuff down and it was a real pain in the ass to keep track of and there's so much now that you can just get easily and you don't have to store it yourself. It's just like, it's crazy how, how far things have come. I feel like people, it's really easy for people not to appreciate that. Yeah. And I think, uh, one of the things that we've always tried to align on because we invest so early, you know, we align much more with the founders, the misfits, the builders, and like they love Mm sci-fi. The reason a lot of people stay away from the word sci-fi is because the limited partners who invest in VC funds. So when we go out and fundraise, and you're talking to pensions and uh, endowments and you know nonprofits, sci-fi. They're like, whoa, that doesn't sound like a moneymaker. Uh huh. That's just weird, though. I mean, I I don't know. I'm just to keep beating this drum. It's just like I guess I can understand why you would think that if it were still 1980. But like, I just feel like you know when I graduated college, it was still kind of weird to have a cell phone. They existed, but it was sort of like it was a little bit weird. And then to think about how much things have, you know, I didn't get an email address till I started college. Like it's to, to think about how much things have come. It's just, it's weird for anyone to me to be like over like 35 and still be like knee jerk skeptical about new technology, but people still are like, that's my, that's the thing I come back to with crypto all the time. It's just like, I don't know, man. I remember people saying email was stupid. I remember people saying the cloud was stupid. I remember people, people saying blogging was stupid. Crypto came along and I was like, I'm just going to give it a shot, right? Like, it's just like none of those things were stupid. They all actually turned out to be like really big. So why are people still looking at the new weird thing and being like, that's stupid. We don't need it. You know, like, do you guys talk about that at Boost? Yeah. I mean, it's, I would say generally, if you're not doing any research and you're kind of looking at the space, it is very easy to look at it and think that's stupid. There's a lot of stupid things going on in crypto. Oh, sure. Um, so I won't, I won't discount someone that comes in and, you know, really doesn't know much about it. And that's kind of what I tend to think is if someone calls it stupid, they just don't know anything uh, about the space yet. And they haven't really spent any time because anyone who has, you know, the infamous rabbit hole you get stuck in and then we're all spending all of our waking hours thinking about crypto. Yeah. Um, you know, I think one of the things that you and I have talked about, I believe, uh, in the past is. There aren't a lot of really easy, so on the narrative piece, there's not a lot of very approachable narratives for the common person with crypto. Mm-hmm. Um, and a lot of, some of the common narratives are like, we still talk in this hypothetical sense. Um, there aren't many situations where random person, uh, here's the story of their friend whose life's better because of crypto. Mm-hmm. Uh, in anything other than like they might, the neighbor might've made a lot of money on Dogecoin or, you know, something random and they're telling everyone they made money. Um, so, so something that, you know, we talk a lot about in the portfolio is like, how do we continue to tell the story of people's lives being better and values being created from this ecosystem? Like real people, give me names of people. Um, so, that's what we spend a lot of time on. I think there, it's an ongoing thing and in early technologies, a lot of the early days are just tinkering speculation, uh, you know, throwing a lot of things against the wall and seeing what sticks. So I'm not overly worried that we don't have a lot of solid answers to these right now. Cause they think they just come in time. Um, but I do bring that up a lot to well, people. 
I feel like you're you <laughs> you're just a lot more patient about these things than I am. I guess I, I I well, and I don't have to be patient in the same way. But like to to that sort of point, I guess a part of the way I think about it is just like I don't know. I remember when Facebook went public and everyone was like, but they aren't really making money. And it's like, yeah, but, and then they did, you know, it's just like, I still, I just keep coming back to this thing. Like, I just don't understand how you could have lived through, you could have been an adult for more than 20 years and still like, just be skeptical about every large, any new companies. Sure. But if there's a large category in technology that a lot of people are moving into, it just it still seems weird to sort of dismiss it out of hand, uh, you know, but yeah, I mean, always follow the smart people, and that's what we—that's how we think about our sectors that we go after. That was the early days of why we chose crypto. You know, most of the smartest people I knew were thinking about crypto. Um, you know, again, Bitcoin back in the time. So, right, if you small follow the smart people, there and enough of them join it. You know, hard to imagine they're wrong on right. a long enough timeline. And so, okay, so an, another thing. And speaking of narratives, a, a narrative that you all created around yourself, which, uh, you know, I wrote about, uh, I guess three years ago now, it's crazy, but, um, uh, early on in that time that you mentioned when it was just all people talked about with crypto was Bitcoin and there weren't a ton and, and, and you all made yourself as available as some of the early investors in Bitcoin. You made a plan. I think it was to like, you committed to invest in a hundred Bitcoin companies and, and it took a while and, and the, what, what you meant by Bitcoin expanded to crypto and whatever. But, um, but the, but that's the story I did in 2018 is that, that you guys hit it. Um, and I so I don't know, walk us through that time, kind of what the narrative was when you made that announcement and then sort of, you know, how, how that whole discussion evolved until you sort of hit the goal in something like 2018. Yeah. So we, you know, we started investing in Bitcoin companies. Uh, our fund size was very small at the time. And, you know. For a company to survive, especially these early stage startups, they tend to need more investors than just us. So we would invest in a bunch of companies. Uh, but the problem is, how do we convince more people to start investing in kind of Bitcoin and crypto companies? So one of the things we did was just make a statement that Boost VC is investing in 100 crypto companies by, you know, three years or whatever. Because we just kept trying things to get other people to also invest. Because back in, you know, 2012 to 2014, 2015, it was, there was like five investors. Um, and yeah. they all knew each other. And there was like... Who, can you say who they were? I mean, is that a, I don't say anything you shouldn't say. I will, I'll, I'll just say that an old editor I had used to say that like back in the early days, the big ones that sort of everyone went to and tell me if this is right, because I've, I've always sort of thought it was right. It was, was kind of like Joe Lubin, who's known for consensus in Ethereum, um, Brock Pierce, uh, who's associated with, you know, a bunch of things, I guess, mostly Tether. And then, um, you know, DCG, the owner of, of Coindesk and, and, you know, part owner of everything under the sun, you know, uh, Barry, like he said, he, he said those are the big three early on. Is that, does that sort of square with your experience? Would you add some more in there or, or, or what? Yeah, I would lean heavily into DCG. Obviously they've done a ton. We're super early. Uh, we've known Barry forever. Um, blockchain capital, Mm, you know, right, they right. were very early doing yeah, thing, and that makes part sense. of that was Brock Pierce. Um, oh, right, because you know, he was a part Joe of that Lubin. early on. Right, I sort of right, right, yes. Yeah, Joe Lubin, yes, but much more so after Ethereum launching. Okay. Um, yeah, and then you kind of had uh, a lot of the mainstream Silicon Valley funds 
you know, when a new technology emerges, you see this trend where a lot like the funds that are willing to take the risk, they take one bet. So, you know, some of them hit Coinbase. Some of them were like blockchain.com in the early days. Um, you know, someone crack in and you kind of saw that play out. Um, but they were kind of like, okay, we did what we did our one crypto bet. And then that like, that was it. Um, so yeah, part, part of what we just spent a lot of time doing and uh, trying to get better at was just getting more people to invest in the ecosystem. Um, because there was just so little capital and we thought there was just a lot of talented entrepreneurs. Obviously, you could, we never would have expected what you see today and how much capital, how is out here. Um, you know, we were even one of uh, Polychain's first checks and uh, help them get started. And because they were focused on what we thought was a really interesting play of, okay, they were, you know, we saw mostly Bitcoin as the world and they saw, okay, there's about to be a world of so many chains launch. And mm -hmm. obviously Olaf was very correct there. Um, and yeah, so, uh, and you look at today and Damn, there's a, there's a lot of money out there. <laughs> no kidding. Well, we, anyway, I definitely want to talk about that. But but just staying in this moment of that early time, I, I'd be interested in getting your spin on this. I think, well, I don't think he'll be mad if I mis misattribute this to him, but I think it was Chris Bernisky, who I, her, I heard talk one time, who's, you know, uh, one of the two leads at Placeholder VC, used to be of Union Square, blah, blah, blah. I think it was Chris who was saying, I, I heard him at some conference or whoever I'm quoting, I heard at some conference was saying, you know, was saying that they had been pretty early in the space, but, and, and were not, not running a fund, but they were like running, you know, some pool of money at some, some fund in the early, earlier in their career. And their the problem was everyone was okay with them investing in crypto. You know, they wanted them to, but the logistical problem is nobody was set up to actually buy to like, if you were a fund to like actually buy Bitcoin, for example, you just couldn't do it for, I guess, you know, legal reasons or accounting reasons or something. And so I remember they said that like all they could really do was invest in like, um, graphics processor companies and other sort of like hardware companies as kind of a proxy for crypto because that did sort of hit it because some percent of their business would relate to, you know, that even if they weren't really trying to, does that square with your memory of those early days? Oh yeah. I mean, you still see it today. Um, you know, venture capital is a model and the structure in place actually doesn't allow in many instances to invest straight in tokens or any of the kind of innovative things coming out of crypto. Um, and in the early days for us, you know, that's one of our biggest mistakes was we didn't innovate venture capital quick enough to keep up with crypto. Um, so we were investing in equities when we should have, you know, obviously been buying more Bitcoin mm -hmm. or investing directly in Ethereum. And obviously we caught on later, but um, there was, we thought we had to fit crypto into venture capital, whereas venture capital needed to catch up to crypto. That's not just the sound of that first sip of Morning Joe. It's the sound of someone shopping for a car on Carvana from the comfort of home. That's a good blend. It's time to take it easy, like answering some easy questions to get pre-qualified for a car in minutes. Talk about starting the morning right. Just like customizing your terms so your car fits your budget. Mm -mm -mm. Visit Carvana.com or download the app to experience car shopping the way it should be. Convenient. Comfortable. Ah. 
CarMax is putting peace of mind back in car shopping by putting you in the driver's seat to find a ride that's right for you. Because at CarMax, we believe you shouldn't just settle for a car. You should love your car. That's why every car we sell is CarMax certified quality so you can be sure with upfront pricing that's the same for every customer. So don't settle. Find love at first drive and start shopping now at CarMax.com. CarMax, the way car buying should be. And what did um, that, I mean, you guys own some coins. I mean, you don't have to say what, but you, you, have, you, like, you list Bitcoin on your website, you know, on your crypto investments. So I assume you hold a certain amount of Bitcoin, um, which, you know, I don't think anyone would find that surprising. But but what did what did it take? What like what logistically did you have to do differently? Like I just like what's the problem there? Uh, yeah. So you know when you're running a fund, you have a bunch of people you need to keep happy. One is your investors, and that's probably the most important. They give you money, and they t- typically trust you with the money uh, to do as you please. Um, but you you know there's certain things you're going to avoid investing in, like drugs are one of them. And, you know, you do have to report back that there is something going like your investors have to be okay with what you're purchasing. Sure. Um, the other is like back office being accounting, uh, kind of tax. Many of these just weren't ready to even account for it. So people started getting over the hurdle of, is it worth buying something that all of a sudden I'm going to spend a couple hours a week just trying to figure out with my accountants how to solve for this change in price. Uh, and then there's the lawyers that also weren't ready for it. And the lawyers, they're trying to make sure that everyone's, you know, buttoned up to the T. So they're just saying, Hey, you should totally avoid this. Mm-hmm. Um, so we were just so early that there wasn't any attorneys kind of out there for it. There were no back office and accountants and tax people for it. Um, but we were fortunate that our LPs and our investors, uh, we're mostly just high net worths um, and kind of uh, people who were okay taking the risky bets. Some of them already had Bitcoin. So for us, it actually wasn't that difficult to make the transition. But, you know, you've seen play uh, out over the last seven years, funds attempting to, I mean, even just buying Bitcoin as a fund is still challenging for kind of those reasons. Um, and there's just a lot, a lot of legacy processes in place that prevents them mostly. Um, so, so it isn't, it isn't like so much that it's, that you need to like, I don't know, fill out some form with the SEC. It's just that like, there's a very structured way of reporting back to LPs and, and for a while, no one even really knew how to report back a, a non-equity asset. Is that kind of the idea? Well, the one legal piece you have to be careful of is under 20% of a fund uh, can be in something that's non-traditional equities. Okay. So once you pass that, you run Uh, into other problems. And that's where you see like uh, Andreessen Horowitz filed um, and they're no longer classified as like your classic venture fund. Okay. Well, and also Bitcoin can be a, I mean, I feel like this is a good problem, but like it's like you can like coast along for a long time with Bitcoin doing next to nothing and then it explodes. And I can imagine that could quickly become more than 20% of your funds, but you, you know, it's like you did anything different. It's just that all of a sudden you, you, it's worth way more, right? Yeah. And you know, through the market, we've seen, uh, obviously how people decide to raise is kind of changing, uh, year to year. So, 
you know, it was equities and then we had the ICO, there was just tokens and now we're kind of back in the safes with warrants and then, you know, some are just doing tokens with nothing, no entity. Um, so we, we really, because we know we've made the mistake that venture capital uh, was holding, like the model of venture capital was holding us back, we really try to think first on the investment and then how do we make it work if we decide to do it. Right. So, okay. So I know, uh, you know, when you guys made your commitment to invest in 100 Bitcoin startups, um, you know, you had to say Bitcoin then because that was really the only language there was. When you sort of announced Mission Accomplished, it was really more like 100 crypto startups, which, you know, I have no problem with this way of describing things. But to say that the Bitcoin community isn't exactly open minded about this topic, at least some of them aren't uh, vocal <laughs> chunk art, you know, can you talk to us about sort of making that transition as a group and kind of what the reaction was to you, to you all moving into like being early Bitcoin supporters, then moving into some kind of non Bitcoin things? Yeah, I don't know if we really heard or saw any pushback. Oh, okay. Um, you know, I think, Twitter tends to blow a lot of things out of proportion. Mm-hmm. Um, and like, and I'm friends with many of those, uh, pretty hardcore Bitcoiners and, you know, you talk to them one-on-one and they have no issue. They probably all also own something non-Bitcoin. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's just part of their brand that they don't want to tell you about it. Mm-hmm. So I, I think there was no issue. It was just crypto became, uh, the catch all for everything in the space. But I, you know, I'm still probably more so, Bitcoin heavy than, uh, many newer investors out there. Okay. Yeah. I was talking to another investor about this recently and it's just this, this whole concept of how people see like what seems like a BS, um, project. I just find to be kind of weird. Like I, I won't name what the project was, but you know, it's one that is, is doing pretty great right now. And I don't think anyone thinks it's going to, I don't know. I mean, it could all fall apart eventually, but probably not, you know, in the next year. Um, and, and they were saying like, you know, oh, we just kind of looked at that as a, you know, to use the Twitter nomenclature as a shit coin for a long time. And I, and I've always found this kind of be kind of weird. Cause I was just like, you can, it was one, it's one of many projects that had decent backers and some smart people behind it. And was like, you know, putting out regular updates on a daily basis. Like to me, it's just weird to me. And I, I'm sort of wondering what you think about this. To me, a shitcoin is like an obvious knockoff copy or a me too play of something like someone's just hoping that they can fool everyone for a hot minute and a thing will go up for a second and they can sell out some stuff that they have and like walk away. To me, that's what a shitcoin is. Just like it just a, a thing that you need to be fairly dumb to think is a serious project. But if you've got like a team that's public and they've got a GitHub page and they're updating things and like they have a thesis that doesn't seem like nonsense and they're not just obviously just cutting and pasting from other projects. It's hard, you know, it might not work out, but it doesn't seem like a shitcoin. Like what's your thought on the whole like shitcoin narrative? No, I totally, totally agree with you. If someone's putting in the time and effort um, and they're, you know, trying to make something work, I would say the one thing I will look into Typically, and you know, in the early days, because we're investing so early, I spent a lot of time thinking about um, kind of incentives for the early team. So there's a wide range of how people structure kind of vesting or team tokens, or you know, what does it look like over one year, two years, five years, ten years? Um, and I think that tells a lot of the kind of what the team's thinking about. So I spend more time thinking about that than like 
oh, is this going to work or is this just a coin or, um, because I think a lot of people are, you know, opportunistically making a lot of money right now. And, uh, it's very easy to structure it in a very hot market that, you know, there's no vesting schedules or, but I, I love coming across a founder who's like, Hey, we're going to do, you know, between four and seven year vesting for the team. Our team allocation is this, you know, we're in it for the long term. Um, so I think there's a lot of interesting conversations happening and they were happening more as, you know, the market got hotter and definitely a lot less on kind of what are the incentives for each of these teams. And I think looking at that and being open and honest about that is pretty important. Wait, so let me just say back what you said, because I do think this is important. I want to make sure I got it right. But what you're saying is a thing that you look for with a new project that you can't, you know, you, you don't know everything about them, um, is you, you see it as a, a strong signal if the team, the early team is getting something out of, you know, whatever new gener- thing they're gen- generating, but like they can't cash out quickly. They want you, you you really think it's powerful to see like, uh, yes, you're getting tokens for being earlier or whatever it is. Um, but it's locked up over and it, uh, and it unlocks over a long period of time to give that investive to play for the long term. That's what you're saying. Yeah. Yeah. So I'm, you know, who am I to judge shitcoin or not? But the thing I can judge is who the people who are creating their own incentives. Uh, I think you can really gather around that and, you know, other investors should be viewing this. The team dynamics is important. Um, you know, are they going to make a lot of money and run really quickly and the project kind of left for dead? We see that all the time. Uh, or are they saying, hey, I'm starting a project. This is going to be a five-year-plus journey. I'm aligning the incentives for me and the team that's you know going to be joining me. I think uh, what the founder does for themselves means a lot. And then you know, the hardest part in crypto right now is it's not raising money. It's, you know, getting people to join and build on your project. Mm-hmm. Um, hiring is extremely tough right now. So uh, I think it's important for founders to kind of be aligned there. So I'm sorry to hammer you so much on this historical stuff. There, there's a level on which I sort of think crypto over obsesses on it, on history, um, you know, maybe to its detriment. So, so what are you excited about right now? And feel free to talk to me about non-crypto things. It's cool. It, it's, it's, you know, if you're like really jazzed with the next robotic startup, like let's hear about it. I think it'll, I'll think it's cool too. Um, but so like, what are you excited about right now? What am I excited about right now? Um, I think the, the next thing there's two things that I'm probably looking at right now. One are DAOs. DAOs, you know, I think plenty of people are talking about them. It's definitely not a underlooked category. Yeah. Um, but I think it has one of the largest open kind of pastures to play in terms of uh, the design space. Like, and you can, I want to see DAOs brought in many forms to many different types of communities. Um, so for you know, doing Twitter investing groups or Reddit you know, subreddits. Um, I want to see a lot more experimentation there. I think, you know, one of the things crypto is so amazing at is, uh, kind of massive coordination between generally strangers. Um, so I see more of that. And then the other one that I want to spend more time on is just the privacy sector. Um, I think we will look back in a decade and realize that everything has been public and that wasn't necessarily a great thing. 
Um, so I know, and I also know there's a lot of people working on that, but it's definitely, uh, it's one of those, no one cares until it affects them. And right now I don't think anyone cares. Uh, Wow, there's a lot I want to unpack there. Well, let, let me just make a really stupid comment first, and then I'll come back to my somewhat smarter comment about about uh, the private sector. Uh, here's my stupid comment. I want to see a party DAO, and I, I think there actually is a party DAO. I don't mean that. I mean, like, um, one of the smartest – I used to hang out with this guy. He One of the smartest things he ever said to me – he said a lot of interesting things. But he was like, I like to go to parties where you have to buy a ticket. Um, and he, he said, the reason I like to go to parties where you have to buy a ticket is that if you organize some people to go with you and they have to buy their ticket too, they're less likely to flake. You know, I mean, you're on the West coast, I'm in New York. It's there. It's a high social flaking concentration of people in both places. And he was like, if people have to buy a ticket, even if it's a $5 ticket, they're more likely to actually show up in the end. And then everyone has a better time because they, they feel this like exit cost. And it'd be cool if like there was a Dow that was just like, you paid $20 for a ticket, but like $6 covered the cost of the thing. And the other $14 you like got back just if you showed up, you know, it was just, it was just like an incentive to just actually come so that it's like an actual proper party. I feel like that, I feel like those sorts of manifestations would be really cool. Well, there's kind of apps for that in the working out category. Okay. you, You pay, I don't know. It's like you pay a dollar a day and is if you don't work out, you lose your dollar type thing. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And I think I've seen some people attempt this. There's but a yeah, goal and, one, and a example, goal one thing. Yeah. Totally right. And if you also, if you just need an accountability buddy, I can, I can do that for you, Brady. Okay, okay cool. Well, I don't Make get invited sure to, to a to lot parties. of, I don't get invited to a lot of parties if I'm being really honest, but, um, but I still do think it's a good concept. Um, okay. So sl- slightly less dumb, um, What makes a life a good one? Is it the adventure you have? Or the friends you find along the way? Maybe it's pursuing your passion while striving to protect, defend, and save what you believe in every single day. So, what makes a life a good one? In the Coast Guard, we think it's all of the above and more. But you'll have to find out for yourself. Visit GoCoastGuard.com to learn more. Say more about what you mean by everything is public. What do you, what, what things are, I mean, I think I know what you mean, but I want to hear what you mean. Yeah. Just public blockchains. Okay. Um, you know, I send money to someone, I participate in some ICO, I buy an NFT, you know, generally with enough, uh, data and enough time to look at it. You know, this is why Chainalysis is a huge company right now. Um, it's not that hard to uncover what people are doing and who those people are. Yeah, um, if you care enough, it only takes one. I could, it only takes one mistake for me to reveal to everyone who I am across a ton of transactions. Right. Yeah. And right now it like, doesn't really matter. Um, you know, and you see this argument playing out in, you know, the non-crypto world. It's like, well, who cares if the camera's there or someone's watching or recording or it's like, well, it matters when, you know, something goes wrong. Um, so I think this will be a heavily debated topic in the future, but it's not enough right now. Uh, so that here's my really, uh, so a thing that if I, I don't understand cryptography really, but I think I like sort of understand it. But like one thing I sort of get about cryptography is that like you have a private key 
but that private key could ostensibly generate a wide array of public keys, you know? And I don't understand why someone hasn't built a blockchain yet where, like, I know on Bitcoin even right now, you know, if you use certain wallets, you have a ton of public addresses. But you can't, if you if you get something to one public address, you can't spend it, you can't spend that same UTXO from another public address. And it seems like that would, I don't really know, but it seems like that would be a fairly easy feature for some blockchain to build that would allow people to just like have ready-made more privacy if just like they could just, you know, spend from a different public address that than the one they received on. And I, I don't really understand why folks haven't done that, but, but anyway. Yeah. I mean, I think there's a big disconnect between kind of, uh, what can be done versus like what teams put into UI UX design. Um, you know, a lot of these issues I think can be solved for, but I think right now, uh, a lot of these are like, how do you present something easy enough to a user where they will do it. Sure, 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 totally. But yeah, totally. Um, so, well, as I understand it, what I just described, I have a friend who's a pretty smart Bitcoin engineer, and she told me that, like, you really, you even if you had a different UX, you, you just can't do that with Bitcoin. You would, if you want, you'd have to move, even, you'd have to do a transaction, even though it's your own wallet and it's your own private address, to, like, move it to that other public address, making it pointless to do it. You know, it's just like, because then you have made a chain. But um, do you, as a, as a company that thinks about a sci-fi future, among the other, there's another category of thing that's public that I worry about sometimes. I mean, I think the technology that is doing it is very cool, but you know, there's all this decentralized storage technology that is, you know, they're storing all this private data in public, but it's it's stored publicly in an encrypted fashion. And there's a level in which I worry. It's just like, well, that's fine for now, you know, until someone invents some weird thing that no one saw coming that just like accelerates computers a million times, like in a week, and then they can just break everything, you know? Um, I don't know. Do you guys think about that? Uh, I don't, you know, stay up at night thinking about that at all. So I'm still sleeping well. Okay. <laughs> okay. But is, well, I guess, is that a thing that you're, does that, does that, is that included in the privacy area that you're interested in? Yeah, I think people need to be, very careful when you're taking anyone's data. Um, and I think there's a high level of scrutiny within like big tech right now. And that should also be brought over to anyone handling data in the crypto world. Um, but like the technology itself and how to break it. Um, I, I, again, I think it's, there's still a lot of unknowns. I don't know if I would take very sensitive, secure data that I really didn't want out there and trust it yet. Um, I think a lot of crypto still is a sandbox and we're still kind of learning, you know, what are the, what works, what doesn't, what are the edge cases that break it? Um, so it's, you know, why still on some blockchains, you're not going to send super large sums of money. Um, whereas Bitcoin, you feel a more confident because it's been around a while. Uh, and yeah, it, it, to me, I think crypto is so fascinating because it really is just so early. So one thing I think I like, I talked about this uh, with Ash Egan, who's a VC I had on recently. I think he was the, the first VC and I think maybe you're the second. Um, but I think Ash is great. Yeah. He's a, he's a good guy. Um, but um, I, I asked him this question. I'd like to hear your answer to it is I think for, for folks from the looking from the outside in to venture investing, 
you know, to, to them, it looks like someone has a decent pool of money and they're just sort of picking and choosing among, you know, cool projects who they want to give some of it to. And because they have money, people are just going to come to them. And so it looks like an easy job, but I, but having talked to a ton of VCs, I know that it's, it's actually pretty tricky and it takes a lot of clever strategy and everyone has sort of different strategies. Um, and it's getting harder all the time. Could, could you give us your version of like what makes VC harder than people might suspect? No, that's super easy. It is. <laughs> uh, well, yeah. So there's the two customers and we have LPs that are our investors and then we have founders, um, that you both have, you have to make both sides happy. Uh, so, you know, most people tend to forget that uh, VCs have to raise money. The VC fundraising process can be brutal. Uh, in crypto right now, everything's easy. So, like, if you went back to when we started investing in crypto, the hard part wasn't necessarily finding crypto entrepreneurs. It was convincing people to give us money to then give to crypto entrepreneurs. Mm-hmm. Um, so that was a much harder problem. It was easier to find the entrepreneurs because there weren't that many people. It was a very non-competitive space. There were like four of us. So we would basically see the majority of the deals out there. Um, the deal terms you know, were much lower. It was easier. We had much more pricing power. You see that today. It's become much more competitive. It's a bloodbath. It's, you know, uh, it's easier for crypto funds to raise money. Uh, it's much harder to deploy the money. So it's totally swapped. And what does bloodbath mean for VCs? I mean, I assume you're not actually killing each other. So like when you guys are like, that's a bloodbath, like what are you really saying? (laughs) Yeah, no, no, no one's killing each other. Yeah, right, right. But I quite, I don't uh, exactly quite know what it means that you're saying there. I mean, I sort of know, but I don't really know. It's the sharp elbows. It's, uh, if, a team is raising $3 million. That's the set allocation. You know, say there's $15 million that want that 3 million. Uh How is the VC going to convince the founder to make sure they get a piece of the money? Um, there, there's, you know, and again, back to the early days a little bit, there's a lot of sharing amongst VCs because, you know, they wanted to raise three to $10 million. That was a lot of money back then, mm-hmm. and you kind of had to bring everyone around and be like, "Okay, we'll do a lot of deals together." So we did a ton of deals with like DCG. Um, oh, so you're saying like once days. upon a time it was just like the the problem was like how can we find people to like close this round? We were making calls to like get that done, and now it's a very different story. And now it's you know you got to fight and earn your spot, <laughs> right? Um, right. You got to move fast. So timelines that used to be maybe a month to close. Now it's down to, you better commit. And, you know, we get emails all the time. It's like, you have 48 hours to commit and you can have 50 K of the round. And it's like, well, you know, I haven't even met you yet, but (laughs) I'll consider it. Um, and then prices, prices are much higher. So, you know, we were investing in many companies at much lower prices today. It basically, if you have a really solid team, um, an early product, you know, you can command a much higher price, which, you know, for the venture side and why you're saying, why you're asking potentially like, it's not always easy is I have to still return an expected amount of dollars back to our investors. And if you're starting your entry price at something much higher, it just gets much harder. 
And by price, and, what you mean is valuation, right? Like you're getting a smaller piece of the company per dollar is what you're saying. Smaller piece of the company per dollar. Um, and for us, it's like, because we've seen, you know, we saw the crypto rise of 2013, which was like Bitcoin hit 1200 bucks. And then we saw it crash and then there was a winter and it was scary. And then you had the 2017, 2018 and then crash and then winter. So like, we've seen these, we know it's, uh, we know there's a lot of excitement when it goes up and, you know, it gets a little scary when it comes down and we just try to stay very consistent, uh, invest early, invest in good people, kind of long time horizons, incentives aligned. And yeah, we don't try to get caught up too much in FOMO, although it, it is hard. There's just a lot of cool stuff going on, but yeah, it's, uh, I wouldn't say it's, it's probably, yeah, I wouldn't say it's better or easier to be a crypto founder or a crypto investor right now. Um, but it's, you know, it's a wild world. I, I would add the crypto, you know, we invest in many verticals, um, and within the other verticals that are non-crypto, you know, you have your very traditional, uh, fundraisers, you have angel investors and you have VCs and you kind of have your family office. Some of the LPs do direct investing as well in crypto. Not only are we investing kind of competing against other VCs, and the angels and the direct investings, you're kind of competing against this new class of angel investor, which is kind of the, it was the, it started kind of as the ETH whale. Like you kind of, Ethereum spawned a bunch of crypto millionaires right. and they started competing. And then you started seeing them launch projects and then they all have these treasuries and they've started investing. So it really is uh, the amount of competition from every angle uh, has increased dramatically. As we, you know, today it was announced that um, OpenSea, which is an, in, sort of the original eBay for NFTs, you know, I, I did the first story at Coindesk about them, um, I don't know, probably 2018, I can't remember, but something like that, you know, a bunch of good investors came in, but they just did a, a series, whatever, for um, for $100 million with a, a $1.5 billion valuation, which seems, you know, pretty big. And, and, and FTX had some like, I don't know, but FTX is sort of, just crazy, but like some wild round today too. Our valuations seem like they're kind of, and I'm getting a little some whispers from people that this is a thing right now. But valuations seem like a little wild right now. Is that right? Do you, do you think? Uh, yeah, but valuations everywhere are wild. Okay. Um, you know, general tech is way up, housing prices way up, stock market way up. So a lot of this, I think, is just if you think of it on a relative basis, you know, market cap of Ethereum, I was just looking at it, it's still below the market cap of Netflix. Um, like that's wild to me, but just Netflix. Right. Um, so I don't worry too much about it. You know, obviously it seems like the world market has just gotten bigger. So the pie is bigger to take. Right. Um, and you know, the bias here is we invested in Coinbase and Coinbase's market was massive and way unexpected when you were thinking of uh, originally underwriting, kind of making that investment, like imagining it being over a $50 billion company back then made no sense. Mm -hmm. um, so we also, you know, benefit from crazy valuations. So uh, 
we're a small room tonight, but I'm sure it's a, a great room. If folks want to ask questions, uh, just ask to be a speaker now, and we'll bring you up in just a second. Just a reminder, this is being recorded. It'll go up on the SpaceCast podcast. So, um, you know, if, you're, if you ask a question, you're being okay with that. Um, but I want to ask Brayton one last question myself, and then if no one volunteers, I'll, I'll ask one more. But uh, I have a little bit of a side quest that I've launched on this podcast, Brayton, and you know, odds are you won't be able to help me on it. But I just keep just going to keep putting this out here. Um, you know, I know you were around. Well, you were around long before. Uh, but when the 2017 ICO boom happened, you know, one of my little personal success stories in that is I wrote what I think was the defining story for a little thing that was the useless Ethereum token during that with this guy, this anonymous guy was like, uh, I'm going to do an ICO that is going to do nothing for anyone with the money. So please give me some. And, uh, he had a sort of clever structure to it. I did a story about it that was, you know, kind of popular to prior employer. And, uh, I've never stopped thinking about that guy. He just sort of dropped off the map after that was all done. Understandably, he was always anonymous, uh, but I've decided that like some people want to find Satoshi. I want to find the UET CEO. Um, do you know who that was? No, I've never even heard of this. Oh, really? Dang. Well, I keep hoping that someday someone who listens to one of these will have a clue. I believe, I will tell you, I believe this person is still in the space. Like they made some money, you know, they made like $65,000 in ETH in 2017, which is like, who knows what that is now. Um, they probably, you know, use some of it, but, uh, but yeah, no. sure, there, there were a lot of people in 2017 that raised ICOs that maybe said they had an idea for something, but also just took the money. Right. No, totally. Well, this and guy, much, much larger sums. This guy didn't, he, he definitely just took the money. That's what he told everyone he was going to do the whole time. He was like, I'm going to take the money. <laughs> that is, that yeah, is my point. Yeah, he was, he like, he had a ticker. He was like, I can buy this many flat screen TVs with the money that you guys have put in, but I want to find him. Well, if you're listening to this right now or you listen to the podcast, I am looking for this guy, so let me know. So I'm going to ask you about one last thing. You and I had a little DM exchange about this. Um, it wasn't a thing you had been actively following, but you, you, know, you got it once away, one, right away. And I, I was curious about your l- larger take on it is, you know, an OG um, crypto company in the space, Shapeshift, announced that they are completely decentralizing. Uh, I guess that was last week. I, time is flying. Um, but, you know, they're going to completely shut down the company. They've built this product that they're going to turn over to its users. They already had a token out there anyway. So they're just saying, you know, that token is the governance token. And you all take it from here. Um, they kind of had become a little bit of a sort of portal for crypto. So, you know, and then, you know, MakerDAO sort of reaffirmed that they're shutting down the foundation this week. That, that was not surprising. They've been saying they're going to do that all along. So just kind of reemphasizing a, a long-term plan. But um, do, do, what's your reaction to Shapeshift doing this? Like, I mean, I saw some people say that like, oh, we, ha-, you know, it used to be the only ways you could really exit was either you went public or you got bought. Is this a new exit strategy for folks and are, as an investor are you excited about that you know what's what's your take on this development yeah shapeshift has been kind of an awesome ambassador for crypto over the years yeah very early um they ran into regulatory problems all over the place sure uh if, if for folks listening if you use shapeshift early i mean it's just it's <laughs> Like, it's just hard to imagine what they did early on now. Just it was so non-consodial, so non, it, it was just, it was a wild thing. You could just trade things and no one knew who you were. It was very Eric Voorhees. Um, it was bold and it, you know, didn't last forever. So anyway, sorry, keep going, Braden. Oh, it was incredible. Yeah. Um, so I think, you know, 
and again, I haven't looked at any of this, and I admitted that. And I still didn't after you DM'd me. Um, I think there's a couple things at play here. It's like, what is the exit event for a company that has regulatory problems? And uh, are the investors looking for something, like some outcome of liquidity? So, you know, who buys a shapeshift? Can a shapeshift go public? So if you're kind of, and I think we're going to see this play out all over the place. Um, if you don't really have many options decentralized into or kind of giving back to the community and launching a token, the token is the new kind of exit. Whether that's good or not, like it's still definitely open uh, for experimentation and seeing what goes on. But I think it is, it's one of those things, it's like they're kind of forced to do it. Um, and I actually would draw the comparison to early ICOs and ICOs obviously have their problems as well, and I think we'll see a lot of overlap. But you know, ICOs emerged in a big part because you had a bunch of really talented people trying to fundraise that weren't traditional Silicon Valley people, and they were met with no's from every VC out there. So they almost invented this new fundraising model to solve their own problem. So I think we're kind of seeing this now and potentially we'll see more is like exit to community as, uh, you know, as ICOs took over the fundraising process, this exit to community token could be kind of the new IPO. And, you know, just like we saw with the ICO, I think we're going to see all kinds of uh, people take advantage of it, which is why I think aligning incentives are important. So I would say, you know, what does the team's incentives look like during this IPO or, you know, this token uh, exit to community? But I'm super excited by it. I, you know, I think ICOs brought a tremendous amount of value for how messy they were. Um, but it was one of the greatest innovations that occurred in crypto. It's nice to hear someone who's been around a while say that. I think you're right, too. I think people focus so much on all the, like, crappy ICOs out there that they sort of fail to note the fact that ICOs are also how we funded, like, Brave and Filecoin, you know, so um, which, you know, both seem to be working out pretty well. Um, and you know, there's other, other examples as well. So, um, yeah, I, I agree that, um, the ICO was a pretty interesting moment that we will, um, draw more and more lessons from over time. Well, I think that's a, a great place to close. Um, thanks a ton, uh, Brayton of Boost VC for joining me. Uh, thanks for those of you who are here and for those who listen to the podcast, you know, uh, look for us on Twitter spaces generally Tuesdays and Thursdays at 9 PM though. It's been a little bit more like once a week lately, kind of summer chill going on, but, um, but yeah, uh, you know, thanks for being here for uh, Lightbulb Talks. Uh, we will continue to try to give you those aha moments about crypto and related things. And, uh, you know, see you again on Twitter Spaces and on the podcast soon. Have a great night, everyone. See ya. Peace.